Cortland Computer Services presents the Baseball Lifer Podcast. Well, hi there. Don Wardlow here, your baseball lifer. Here to talk to you about this year's World Series, which is over now. It went five games. I was hoping it would go seven because I always hope the World Series will go seven games. We'll have our guest, Rick Delarada, join us in a while after I talk to you about the World Series that's just ended. The Texas Rangers are your winner. They hadn't won a thing in their existence since they began in 1961. They started out as the second version of the Washington Senators when the original Senators packed up and moved to Minnesota to become the Twins. So the new Senators didn't win in from 61 to 71 the whole time they were in D.C. Then their owner, Bob Short, packed it up and moved the team to Arlington, Texas. And from 1972 until this year, the Rangers had not won a World Series. They played in three different ballparks in Arlington before they won a World Series. Their original ballpark, which began life as Turnpike Stadium, it became Arlington Stadium when the Rangers moved in. But it had been Turnpike Stadium when it hosted a Dallas minor league team. But that was the original Arlington Stadium. Then there was a new ballpark at Arlington that opened in the early 90s, and that lasted until 2019. And then they opened Globe Life Field, and that's where they play now. The Rangers are your champions. And as I'm recording this on Friday, November 3rd, They're having their parade in Dallas. They won the championship in Phoenix in the home of the Diamondbacks. Had Arizona won on Wednesday night, they could have gone back to Dallas and we'd see whether the Rangers would win the series in Arlington in their home ballpark. But they won it in five games in Phoenix. If there's one game memorable about this World Series, it's the first one. That was a tight game from beginning to end. Arizona was ahead 5-3 to three going into the bottom of the ninth. But with a man on, Corey Seager hit the game-tying home run. A two-run shot to make it 5-all. And then in the last of inning number 11, Adolis Garcia hit the game-winning home run. In game two, Merrill Kelly for the Diamondbacks proved to be the one pitcher who could shut the Rangers down cold, and he did just that in a 9-1 to Arizona win. So the series went out to Phoenix, and Game 3 was a battle all the way. It was a 3-1 to Rangers win. Now in Game 4, Arizona manager Tori Lovello didn't have a fourth starter to go to. So having used the three starters he felt he could trust, he turned to what they call a bullpen game where everybody from the bullpen pitched an inning or two and he hoped that would get him to game five and his ace, Zach Gallen. It didn't work so well. The Rangers put up 
five runs in the second and five more in the third off of the Arizona bullpen, and it ended up being an 11-7 Texas win in game four. And in game five, Zach Gallen was on his medal. He gave it everything that he could. He was perfect through four before he walked a man, and he still hadn't given up any base hits until the top half of inning number seven. And in the seventh, the Rangers put one run up, and then they put up four more off of the bullpen in the ninth inning for a 5 nothing win in game five of the series, and that claimed it for Bruce Bochy's Texas Rangers. And what's interesting is that when the Rangers were in the 2010 World Series against the Giants, they lost to their present-day manager, Bruce Bochy, who won three World Series as a member of the Giants as their manager. He won in 2010, he won in 2012, and he won again over the Royals in 2014. So now, having won this year, Bruce Bochy has four World Series under his belt as a manager. We've got a guest today on the Baseball Lifer podcast, and an interesting guest he is. He's been a baseball card collector initially, still is a baseball fan, but his real movement in life is to try and spread the word of peace. And he doesn't do it with a Bible. He does it with a jazz piano and with his ability to write poetry and songs. And he's gone to some scary places and places I certainly wouldn't be able to manage to go to. I, I would be afraid to do so. But one of his more frightening moments actually happened at Yankee Stadium, a place I've gone to repeatedly and never felt the slightest fear. But he had a scary night there, along with some other scares around the world. His name is Rick Delarada. He's my guest, if you keep it right where it is. I am having such a problem at work. This is the second time this month I have had two computers down, and I can't get my computer company to come to the office and fix them. I think they are too busy with other bigger companies. You know, I was having the same problem until we met Cortland Computer Services in Middlesex, New Jersey. They respond to most of my calls the same day, either by accessing my computers remotely or by sending a technician to my office. Wow, that would be great. It is such a disruption when the computers are not working properly. I need somebody that can come out, see what's wrong, and fix it. On our first meeting, they surveyed our network for security, identified some problem areas, and set us up with security software designed to prevent malware, ransomware, and all of the other threats that are on the internet these days. They have been helping central New Jersey businesses for 30 years, and they have an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. You should contact them either on the web at courtlandcomputerservices.com or by phone at 732-356-8860. 732-356-8860. Courtlandcomputerservices.com. Tell them you heard about it on the Baseball Lifer podcast and get a $100 coupon toward your first two hours of computer services. Back on the Baseball Lifer podcast, Don Wardlow here with you. This is going to be an unusual episode of the Baseball Lifer podcast. This man 
for one thing, has quite a card collection going about as far back as you can go with baseball cards. And then he has another story. You're going to hear about baseball cards. You're going to hear another fascinating, extraordinary story. And we'll wrap it up with some some music. My guest is Rick Delarada, known for Jazz for Peace, which we'll absolutely get into. Rick, first of all, welcome. Thank you so much, Don. I was delighted when I got the message from you and when I looked around at some of the things you've done that you would come on a relatively new podcast like this one. But uh, to, to start with baseball cards. Now, when I discovered baseball, I was about eight years old. And I basically told anybody who would listen you know, how great I thought baseball was since I'd heard my first game and I was starting to get more involved with it. And my grandfather not only would tell me baseball stories, but he would supply me with my first baseball cards and sometimes little packages of them. Once in a while, he'd have a big box of baseball cards. Now, what was your early interest in baseball and baseball cards? Well, it first started with my aunt, who used to buy the packs of baseball cards for five cents a pack and would give them to me and my brothers. Um, You know, really my one brother, because my other brother was either too young or hadn't even been born yet. But, um, you know, as uh, uh, me and definitely the brother below me, um, when we would visit my grandmother, my aunt, who lived with my grandmother also, would just come home from work where she worked. She would always bring things every day and she would bring the baseball cards. So it started there. And then, of course, we were living in upstate New York. So there was this fascination with getting opening up the pack and maybe getting a Mickey Mantle, you know, around 1968. Um, So there was that, you know, if you could get a Mickey Mantle in your pack, what a magical thing it would be. And then who else was in the pack? You know, we used to get a lot of this guy. He was a rookie named Tom Seaver. And we just thought this guy stinks. Look, he's got no stats at all. You know, not (laughs) that it was a rookie card and that it was going to be valuable someday, quite valuable. Um, but, uh, you know, it was like the same, same with other people, you know, I think uh, Reggie Jackson or whatever. I mean, some of these people uh, were rookies around that time, Nolan Ryan, whoever. And we didn't know, we thought they were the, when they kept showing up in our packs, it was, we opened up, you know, very rarely would we get, We, I mean, I think I got, finally did get a Mickey Mantle, but we would try and try to get, you know, one of those Mickey Mantles. Instead, we'd get these other guys who were rookies and just didn't have any stats. So we thought, man, they must be really just barely making the team to not have to have like almost nothing on the back of the card. Uh, But anyway, we collected them and tried to get the full set. And then we started to realize things as we went along. Um, We used to sharpen our uh, popsicle sticks on the sidewalk and, you know, trade our baseball cards with the kids up the street and all that. And um, we started to realize that, you know, a lot of the reason we were getting so many of certain cards is because it was a fascination with the way the cards were distributed by the company. I guess it was tops. And some cards would be, you know, like tons of them would be in the like everyone who had these certain numbers were in, um, you know, Washington, the state of Washington and all of your cards were. And I don't know if it was the seasons or what, but 
Um, they would stop selling them or sell them very few in certain areas at certain times and other areas at other times. And I could never really figure it out until I actually went to a card like meeting and they had these baseball card meetings with these old timers. And that's what really opened the door. Well, I mean, the, before that, there was a guy, there was a kid before what led me to that actually was a handicapped kid. He had something on his leg. He had a brace on his leg and he had a tree fort and it was out by a lake. So we went to visit a family. Our family went to visit another family by a lake. And one of the kids, um, you know, out at this lake somewhere, he had a tree fort and he took me up in his tree fort and he showed me baseball cards from 1964 and 1962, you know, stuff like that. And he really had a collection. And I was absolutely fascinated. And I was like, wow, how far do these cards go back? And that's when I started to realize that, you know, it wasn't just the baseball cards that my aunt was getting me. This was like, there was something, a lot more to it. And it was fascinating to me because now I was seeing like Roberto Clemente rookie cards and, you know, old cards of Hank Aaron and all these other guys. And I think he might've even gone back to, uh, you know, Bauman, which was the Bauman baseball cards in the 1940s. I don't know if he went back that far or not, but I knew at that time that there was something big going on, something much bigger than I had been exposed to with baseball cards. So that led me, that experience, a couple times visiting him and seeing this collection he had. Um, Pete Rose, I think, rookie card, 1964. Um and he might have had a, you know, because Mickey Mantle, there was a rookie card. And I, I started to find out there was a Mickey Mantle rookie card of 1951 that was worth money. And then, of course, that Hannes Wagner that I'm sure you know about uh, from whenever that was, was just, you know, over a thousand dollars. I mean, it was just blowing, you know, mind blowing at the time that a baseball card could be worth so much money. And why? And you start to read about it, you know, the the thing about how he told the company to get his cards off of there because he didn't want his name associated with cigarette smoking and they hardly issued very many of them and all that kind of stuff. So then I went to a card collection, card collectors meeting, a monthly meeting. And that's when I saw these old timers. And that's when I started to get cards that I think you were very surprised to hear about. Um, which is a reason, you know, when you're mentioning coming on your show, I've never, I mean, I've been on so many different podcasts and, you know, sometimes I get to talk about different things. I was on a Bruce Springsteen podcast and I got to talk about my life, you know, playing rock music and, and playing in all kinds of bands when I was young. So I could talk about other things besides, you know, the jazz for peace that we're going to get to, but I never had the chance to talk about what I'm talking about with you now. I mean, it's never been one before. I didn't even know we had a podcast for baseball cards you know or a baseball podcast but um so now these old timers they were fascinating because all they cared about don was the card that completed their collection they cared about complete sets they didn't care about doubles and triples and quadruples they could care less all they cared all they needed was one hank aaron rookie for that 1947 thing and they didn't care about the second or third one or fourth one that they had so they would sell me these superstar guys a hall of famer guys for 75 cents and i remember getting a hank aaron rookie card for 75 cents and then 
they had cards going back to the 1930s, Gaudi gum or something, you know. Um, they had some of these cards and they weren't in the greatest condition. Some of them might have a little bit of ink on them or something or goofy little things. But, you know, I wanted them. They didn't care much about them because they had the complete set. They had them in mint condition. So they didn't care so much about this Joe DiMaggio that had a little bit of ink on it. But I was like, you mean to tell me I can give you a dollar and you're going to give me that? And they said, yeah, kid, you know, take it or whatever, you know. And, they, and they're also friendly. They were not like predatory types of grownups. You know, they were the kind of grownups that we're, that we're all supposed to be when we grow up, you know. So it was a friendly thing. It was, uh, they were looking out for you kind of. They, they were fascinated. They enjoyed the fact that you were, it was a camaraderie, really nice people. And it was just a beautiful thing. And then I found out that there were conventions. And that's when I realized that, you know, baseball cards uh, could be vicious. You know, I mean, there were guys, you know, really the money started to come into it. But when I first started, uh, found out about baseball cards, it was just a real camaraderie, honest kind of thing with little kids and then with the grownups and then with their doubles and triples and um, it just had such a warm, um, you know, healthy atmosphere to it. Um, and then once it got a little bit too crazy with like nine sets of 1987 cards and the rookie cards from, you know, almost the same year I was collecting them, you know, uh, being traded up in value and uh, the money came into it. Um, it got a little bit weird for me and then at that time i was taking my life was taking off as a musician and i thought gee i'd better you know kind of start joining the grown-up world here talking with rick delarata about many things before the show's over but the first one is his baseball card collection and i want to put my oar in the water when you talk about those cards with a little bit of ink stain on them i'm a collector of old baseball game broadcasts and some of those in my collection go back to the 1930s. Honestly, they sound like what you would expect them to sound like because they're from the 1930s. That was pioneering technology. This was the best they could do in 1934, which was the first year any game has survived. And that was the 34 All-Star Game and then the 34 World Series. To me, that sounds like those cards with the ink on them you just have to take them for what they are and realize this was from 70 or 80 years ago absolutely i mean i was just so fascinated to have you know a baseball card that came out during the time that joe dimaggio played that actually was a joe dimaggio card i mean it was like you know mind-blowing uh eventually i found myself my, my way into a babe ruth card you know which was uh from the uh you know from the from a tobacco from a tobacco company that issued it you know with, with the cigarettes uh things like that were just fascinating to me and um you know, at the same time, I followed baseball. I mean, I, I'll never forget the World Series between the um, the Cardinals and the Tigers. And for whatever reason, whatever grade I was in school, boy, I followed that series. Neither team was the Yankees. Neither team was the Mets or whatever. But I just it was a fascinating World Series. People like Al Kaline and, you know, that amazing pitcher at that time was Bob Gibson. And uh, man, they just, you couldn't hit that guy. You couldn't get a hit off of him. Um, and it was a fascinating series, you know, uh, that great shortstop that they had. 
on the Cardinals at that time. And uh, for whatever reason, it, it just cap- captivated me, that World Series. You know, I guess, we, you know, there wasn't much to there wasn't much going on as a young kid at that time, you know, and, um, you know, just in general, baseball was something you could really um, it was just something in the sports in general, you know, I'd, I'd read the sports pages when the newspaper came and stuff like that. 68 was the year the Cardinals played the Tigers and Mickey Lolich was the superstar because the Tigers were down three games to one and they came back and won it. And much earlier in this podcast, uh, going back to one of the earliest episodes, I brought out of the vault an interview I did with Mickey Volich in 1993 when he came to London, Ontario to do color commentary. And I had a seeing eye dog with me then, Gizmo. And Mickey Lolich owned a donut shop. And he'd brought some of his supplies from the donut shop up to the broadcasting booth. So after we did the interview, my partner, we would do the game. And my partner was saying to me off off air during commercials, you know, Mickey Lolich is feeding your dog pieces of donuts. Now, you're not supposed to feed a seeing eye dog people food. But how in heaven can you tell Mickey Lolich not to feed your dog? How do you do that? You don't do that. That's how you do it. Exactly. You would just let that one slide. <laughs> you got it. And luckily, my boy had a cast iron stomach. So those donuts didn't cause him any trouble. Now, those card conventions you were talking about, did you ever get to meet any players at those conventions? I know they used to go to them there. They did. Um, you know, I probably probably one or two. The conventions that I was going to in upstate New York, um, you know, they were just starting to really take off. So um, it was just I was kind of, the, you know, just the launching just when it was starting to really become a big deal. The last one I went to, I took a younger brother, my youngest brother to it. And I really got a bad vibe from that one, which was the last one I went to because all my brother really saw was how much money was in this. I mean, I took some cards from my collection, brought them there just for the heck of it. They were all doubles and triples. And I put them on a little table for my brother to see, okay, you know, you get to talk to people, you'll meet to people. People just came and bought those cards up in two seconds and we're holding like $362 in cash. And, you know, I just, the last, you know, I wanted my brother to see the, all the reasons that I, was interested in baseball cards, none of which had anything to do with, you know, that fast cash sort of uh, thing that was going on there. Um, and then, of course, after that, you heard the stories about Pete Rose with all the money he made and then he didn't pay the taxes and they wanted to chase him down and all that stuff. So uh, things took a not as friendly turn uh, at that time when all the conventions came out. But, yeah, you used to get the uh, players there. I mean, I mean, you know, big star players started getting paid because there was a lot of money in it and they could pay those guys to come. But yeah, there were definitely, a, there was always a, a, a major league baseball player or two at each, at the conventions when I went to them. Um, it just probably, I wasn't, you know, I had probably uh, started just, you know, putting my efforts into my music um, by the time it really got crazy with the, all the big superstars showing up at those things. And as your life has taken different directions, have you held on to that baseball card collection you were talking about? 
Well, yeah. So, you know, there were some problems. Well, some problems happened because after my brother saw all the money in that, um, there were some problems because I went, I left and I went to go to school and there was that brother and there was another brother who had an addiction issue. And, um, you know, that, uh, things that you would never think would happen, but then, you know, you start, you don't want to peek under that rug, but whatever, you know, something went down and a bunch of my cards that they, people, they didn't really know much about them, but ones that things that they did know about, you know, cards disappeared because you could take cards literally and go down. Uh, they would, there was like a little shop that you could, that, that there was a guy in there and you could show up with you know, his cards and he would give you money for them. So it just got, when the money came into it, I mean, it was a labor, it was a, it was um, a passion of just love, uh, just something I enjoyed, never thought about it for money. And when the money came in is when I kind of got out because I was like, I just couldn't equate the two and couldn't think of it that way, you know? Um, But it was, I mean, people were making huge amounts of money. So a lot of the cards disappeared. And then there was an issue recently where, uh, the home I grew up with had to be sold and I was able to go there and get out some things. So I do have a, a handful of boxes that have some, you know, complete sets from the 1980s and whatever it was or 70s or whatever. And then I have uh, I think like I have a 1971 complete set or whatever it is, maybe even a 68. But I have a, a few boxes of complete sets and then I have some miscellaneous things. Um, so I have some cards. I just haven't really taking the time to shuffle through everything in there. But yeah, I have some complete sets and, you know, some, some other cards I, I have, you know, I have a few thousand cards in a, in a, in a uh, closet here. And in the intervening decades, have you continued to follow baseball? I have continued to follow baseball. Yeah, absolutely. And even sports in general, uh, maybe basketball a little bit more, but uh, you know, I, I was just, you know, uh, because I knew this was coming up. I, I, you know, kept an eye on on the World Series, which was kind of just some interesting thoughts I had about the World Series. One was this guy who had a 20-game hit streak. We're talking about Cattell Marte. So the Rangers did win the World Series in but, five games, but that, that, that one game with Kelly, Merrill Kelly, for the Diamondbacks, he was the one picture they had who could shut them down and shut them down he did yeah he did and that was that was interesting too i mean there was a couple of, there's a there's a handful of interesting things about that world series so one is this hit streak of which you know he surpassed some major hall of famer names uh with one he got to 18 and then 19 and i knew he was at 20 because no one had ever made it past 18 I mean, Jeter, he surpassed Derek Jeter and a couple other people. So that was fascinating. Then the other thing fascinating was there are some players now, nowadays, back in the day when I was, you know, a kid, um, you were on a team, that was it. I mean, you rarely, you'd rarely see players on, you know, changing teams. Then the, um, that situation came through with Kurt, Kurt Flood, where he, you know, he was a superhero for baseball players, even though he wasn't a Hall of Famer himself, where he kind of broke that with a lawsuit and started free agency. But now it looks like what you see is you'll see the World Series and you'll see some of the same players just on different teams. I mean, I heard that the MVP of the World Series this year, it was his second time, but he had won it the last time he won it. He was on another team. So Max Scherzer, it seems like any team you throw him on, 
has a chance at a World Series or something. So it's just interesting the way you see some of the same players showing up in the World Series, even if their team isn't on it because they change teams. On the Baseball Lifer podcast with Rick Delarada. Rick Delarada is a jazz pianist and singer. And you've, how would I describe it? You you have a movement called Jazz for Peace. I can't think of a better way to put it. Uh, and it, I know the beginning of it, I'd like you to tell our audience. We were 800 miles away. We were in Charleston, South Carolina on September 11th. 2001. And even from a range of 800 miles, we were, well, I was terrified by what I was hearing coming out of New York on the radio and later on out of Washington. And then finally, from a field in Pennsylvania, just terrifying stories. And and my then wife was as upset as I was. And I think we both we're wondering if this was the end of the world we were listening to. You know, would the would the bombings ever stop? What was going to happen next? But now we had a distance of 800 miles. You had about as close a vantage point as you could have and still be safe. Life is very strange because... Um... You know, they they interviewed, I mean, recently I saw an article where they interviewed a, a man who was like in his last days of life. And he, they said, what do you regret the most? And he said, I regret not making enough mistakes. And they said to him, well, why is that? And he said, because I realized late in life that you learn more from your mistakes than your failures. And uh, which was a fascinating thing for him to, you know, say, which was absolutely true. Um, in this instance, uh, you know, it was a tragedy that turned my life around, but in a very positive way. So, um, you know, here I was on 9-11 and I had been uh, tipped off by a phone call by someone on Wall Street, um, you know, telling me something strange going on uh, with the World Trade Center uh, maybe some kind of a you know glider crashed into it or some kite who knows something happened and I why don't I take maybe I should take a look and I went up on my roof where I was less than a quarter of a mile away I was in the East Village uh, which was more of a residential part but right below the East Village is you know this area where you know uh, the the finance you know to, section of New York City and all that stuff is located and that's the World Trade Center and I could see it from the top of my roof on a five floor walk up and I was on the fifth floor. So I just said, okay, let me take a look. And I just went up there and it was like walking into a movie. I mean, I couldn't believe what I saw. And so I experienced it firsthand. The second tower hadn't even been, you know, uh, hit by that time. So, I mean, it was only one tower that was on fire when I went up there. So I really saw, you know, uh, everything, unfold, you know, from literally a luxury box office seat. Um, And so, you know, I was getting really the brunt of it from an emotional standpoint. And um, I ended up with nothing at the end of the day to show for it except a poem. And I named that poem Jazz for Peace. And I love the words of the poem uh, so much that I decided to live up to them. And living up to the words led me to 
a whole bunch of steps after that. First, reciting the poem at a jazz festival in Savannah, Georgia, after the country opened up again, and then putting it to music for the next concert I had uh, back in upstate New York. And then, you know, starting some jazz for peace concerts around New York City, which uh, blossomed into a benefit concert series, uh, a concert at the United Nations that brought Israeli, Palestinian and American jazz musicians together. Um, an event that I really hope uh, people would uh, take a look at now to see if we could, you know, um, uh, find some common ground with all the issues we're hearing about in the news about the, you know, from from the Middle East. Um, and then, of course, a benefit concert series that, uh, you know, took place all around New York City, then was recognized by the mayor at that time, Mayor Bloomberg, uh, which expanded all across the United States, which was then recognized by, you know, people in different counties and areas, uh, one of which was uh, Barack Obama, who sent me a letter uh, on my 500th concert. And then all over the world, uh, you know, nine times just to Africa alone. Uh, and not to mention every other uh, continent that you can, you know, under the, under the stars. What I don't quite understand, Rick, is why Wikipedia has never put any of what you just told me on your Wikipedia page. It stops with your uh, five albums. It's uh, the last album it mentions is called Jazz at Christmas Time. And it doesn't go into the details that you've just told me about the movement you'd think that would be right out there for the world to see because the world needs to see it well what you're you're bringing up something very very important now the good news about wikipedia is you can type jazz for peace into wikipedia and there is a, a page for jazz for peace but there should be something on Wikipedia uh, on my page that talks about it. You're right. I'd have to take a look at that and see. Um, that's, you know, that's very unfortunate. But the good news is you can type in Jazz for Peace to Wikipedia and you'll see a, a, a separate page for Jazz for Peace. So that's good news. But what you brought up is definitely a very, very big problem. Um, there seems to be a marginalization of peace in general, and it's leading to, I mean, I mean it's, it's not good in a time right now where you're seeing tensions uh, escalating and war behavior escalating. And, um, you know, I, uh, for whatever reason, peace is censored it, it's either marginalized or censored completely and uh people that want to talk about war and they want to talk about uh you know how their hatred of other people and they and people want to scream and yell back and forth um there's they seem to be uh, promoted so it's a very backwards time that we're in and you've traveled to all different parts of the world and have you ever been in a country where you thought to yourself, I wonder how safe I am in this country because they're not fans of peace in this country. Well, many, many times I, you know, what happened to me was, you know, I wanted to, I mean, that poem that I was trying to live up to, in order to live up to the words of, of that are in that poem, you have to be who you say you are. And when we started the Benefit Contra series, I felt like, you know, uh, I will help whoever, uh, you know, contacts us and works together with us and, and fulfills the uh, steps that, you know, are needed uh, to qualify. 
And if you qualify, um, this will happen. But I never dreamed that people would be contacting me from places like Pakistan, from places like Rwanda, Africa, you know, from uh, places like, uh, you know, Nepal, the south of India, uh, you know, I mean, so many places that, um, you know, you, you wouldn't even see a Caucasian person, let alone, you know, um, a Western person, you know, you just, I mean, it's unheard of that no one's really ever been there. I mean, no one that we would talk to or, you know, uh, affiliate with or see when we turn on a TV set or we turn on our, you know, now nowadays it's our, our computer. Um, you know, these are places that are amazing parts of the world that I was able to see and experience. And I really had to just trust the universe is what I had to do. Um, when the country of Rwanda opened up after their genocide, and by the way, their genocide, over a million people slaughtered, was instigated by the government's hatred of uh, the the other faction. So there were the, the Hutsis and the Tutus or something like that, these two factions that were fighting, you know, like the Serbs and the Croats, one of them got in power and sent messages out that it was okay to kill the other one. And all of a sudden, you know, um, they, they instigated the genocide. So it took 14 years for them to get that sorted out. When they did, they wanted Jazz for Peace to come over there and they wanted to have Amahara Week, which is the African word uh, in that dialect for peace. So um, Amahara Week featured a, um, a world uh, marathon where they had runners fly in from all over the world and, and compete in a marathon. And it also had uh, two concerts by Jazz for Peace, one in a big stadium and one in a... Um, uh, one in a, like a special hotel for the, you know, the dignitaries and all that. And um, I was in places, you know, just taken by people here and there. And I just went with the flow and I just had to trust the universe. And and that's, you know, that's a timid one. That's a tame one compared to other ones that I could tell you. But I just remembered uh, people telling me that, um, you know, I was very much protected in that country by, the person who was the leader of Rwanda. And uh, he apparently le led with quite an iron fist. And if anybody messed with me, um, they, they were in big trouble. So, uh, so you know, I was, I was kind of protected there. But, you know, I mean, some of the places I went to, Pakistan and other trips to Africa, Ghana, uh, I just had to trust it. It was, it was kind of a spiritual, I had to make a spiritual deal with the universe to just go, to just go there. And, um, you know, I'm glad I survived it and I'm glad I did. And I'll never forget the um, memories I have from all these journeys. Um, and I wouldn't trade anything for the journey I have, even though it was quite interrupted uh, by, you know, my trajectory by those events. On the Baseball Lifer podcast with Rick Delarada, world traveler, crusader for peace. You've been in lots of countries and lots of interesting places. You've told me that on this program. One of your more hairy experiences happened right up there at 161st Street and River Avenue. So tell me some about your Yankee Stadium night. Well, you know, a friend of mine from my hometown 
kind of showed up in the city and contacted me really short notice and said, hey, um, Rick, uh, I got an extra ticket to the Yankees game. Are you doing anything? Can you go with me? So he comes over. We hang out a little bit uh, at my apartment. And then, you know, I just left with him. I was like, with what I was wearing, I didn't change or anything. I'm like, go oh, to Yankees game. Uh, it was a nice sunny day. And we just left to go up to Yankee Stadium, you know. And I was like, sure, I'll go to the Yankee game. I mean, it's, you know, the problem with you live in New York is you take things for granted. Like, you know, you just, um, you know, you could like not do something that's part of New York just because it's there every day. So you don't even think about it. But I was like, okay, Yankees tickets, let's do it. Um, we get up there and it turns out they're playing the Red Sox. And he might've said that to me too, but it was like, anyway, that was fine too. No problem. Rivalry. We get up there and somebody is like saying something to me, uh, behind me. There's like two people behind me and one of them is saying something to me. And this is at the stadium when we're walking somewhere in, in the, in the, you know, in the grounds, um, and I can tell he's trying to start a um, he's trying to start some kind of a confrontation. And then I hear the other guy saying, but I, I don't know. I don't know if that's a yeah, that might not be a Red Sox. Is it a Red Sox thing? And then I had to kind of turn around for something. And I heard the other guy say to the other guy, no, 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 that's that's not a Red Sox jersey. And then I realized that I had a red shirt on. You know, as if you were a Red Sox fan, the kind of color that if you were a Red Sox fan, you would wear. But it was a pizza. It was a pizza company. It was a pizza maker, a pizza, you know, store, whatever it was. Sure. Um, and it had pizza. Yeah, somebody's pizza was on the front of it, I think. And he was only looking at the back. And it might have been a uniform that was sponsored by a pizza company like they do, you know, with Little League or Pop Warner or whatever. I don't know. But I was like, oh, my God, what an idiot I am to wear this red shirt, even though it had didn't say Red Sox. And there was, you know what I mean? Like anyone close up would not believe it doesn't matter because. Um, so I thought, wow, isn't that. Isn't that interesting that, you know, these people would start violence, you know, like, why don't you respect the person's right to root for the Red Sox and, you know, give them a little credit for coming all the way to Yankee Stadium, even though I was rooting for the Yankees. What are you going to do? So especially back then at the old Yankee Stadium, they did have the bleacher creatures. They were known for not being particularly nice. They They could get rough so you didn't have to go halfway around the world and get a whole lot of passports and visas just to find yourself in trouble you can just hop on the subway i think they've lost a lot of that along with a lot of the character that was in the old yankee stadium all oh, i have a ton of good memories at that place and i have just never really gotten to the new stadium yeah, I was surprised that they even felt a need to do that. You know, I mean, these stadiums, um, they it's there's a bit of a racket that goes on with all these crazy stadiums. Um, I've heard stories about how, you know, they funnel it through the taxpayers and they make the taxpayers foot this giant bill. And all these people that are involved on the ground floor of the new stadium get to pad their wallets. And so sometimes it's kind of like a situation where you're really making money for somebody else. And that's the reason that you have to change stadiums or get a new stadium. So these guys can pad their, you know, can pad their bank accounts. With Rick Delarada on the Baseball Lifer podcast, Don Wardlow here. And earlier on, 
you told us about being on the roof of your building when the World Trade Center towers fell on September 11th. And you came out of that with the Jazz for Peace poem. I'd like you to share that with our audience. Okay, we'll do. What I usually do is I just make up some music underneath it. Um, so I kind of freely improvise. And this is that poem that I wrote on that day called Jazz for Peace. through the trees and in my heart it fills me like a celebration Thank you. 
so we can raise our total conscience and see The gift of giving is our greatest privilege. I hear jazz for peace. We've just heard Jazz for Peace by Rick Delarada. Now, Rick, if someone wants to see the words to that poem, Jazz for Peace, if you see it, you can print it out, you can think about it, you can ponder it. Where would they find the poem? Well, now, I haven't checked that Wikipedia page. There's a possibility it might be on the Wikipedia page. I'm not sure. But you might be able to Google Jazz for Peace poem and get to it. Or you might be able to Google Rick Delarada Jazz for Peace poem and get to it. I know 100% for sure that we have archived in our articles. Actually, I can tell you, I can tell you a web. Actually, let me give you an address right now that's a slam dunk. It's jazzforpeace.org, which is our website. Okay, then you'll add to that forward slash articles dot PDF. So it's jazzforpeace.org forward slash articles dot PDF. And you'll see at the very top of that web page, because it's over 200 articles have been done on Jazz for Peace. So you'll see 200 of them. But the good news is right in the first one or two, right, like one, two or three, right in there, there's a It'll say a preview of first Jazz for Peace concert. And when you click on that, you will see that poem. And that's because what happened was, I told you, I wrote the poem on 9-11 and then I recited it at a um, jazz festival for over 8,500 people in Georgia. And then when I came back, for my next concert, um, a reporter called me and had heard about it and wanted me to recite it, just tell him the words. And I recited it and luckily he was taping the interview. I didn't even know that. And in the article, the poem came out in that article. And so it, I hadn't even put it to music yet, but he, uh, he had the poem in his article, which came out like a week before that concert. And then by the time the concert came, I had put it to music. Another fascinating thing is in that article that I'm telling people to go to to see that poem, there's a sentence that I said, Don, off the top of my head. I would have never even remembered I said it. And all I did was, you know, he was just talking. We were just talking back and forth. And I said, you know, if we were to take our greatest qualities as a species, you know, if we were to just take uh, the qualities such as creativity and artistry and humanity and intellectuality and embrace those greatest qualities as human beings, we would have a better chance at avoiding the behavior that leads to destruction. And he printed it in his article. Well, that sentence, unbeknownst to me, got lifted 
by famous quotes websites. And I didn't even know there were famous quotes websites, but there's hundreds of them in every nationality, in every language. There's famous quotes websites, you know, that are translated into, you know, um, Swahili and Russian. And, you know, of course, most of them are in English that I've seen. And if you were to just type into Google, Rick Dolorada, famous quote, you would hear that sentence, you would, you know, would pop up with all different websites, you know, so many pages, you can't even, you, you, you know, you wouldn't even, uh, can't even count them. An unusual twist for the baseball lifer podcast, but Rick started out as a baseball card collector of cards that went back to 1912 is still to this day, a baseball fan, musician, world traveler, crusader for peace. I want to thank you, Rick, for joining me on the program. It's my pleasure, John. Thank, uh, Don, thank you so much. We'll be back with a word about next week's show, if you keep it right where it is. I'm having such a problem at work. It's the second time this month. I've got two computers down, and I can't get my computer repair company to come to the office to fix them. I think they are too busy with other bigger companies to help us. You know, I was having the same problem until we met Cortland Computer Services in Middlesex, New Jersey. They respond to most of my calls the same day, either by accessing my computers remotely or by sending a technician to my office. Wow, that would be great. It is such a disruption when our computers are not working properly. I need someone who can see what's wrong and fix it. On our first meeting, they surveyed our network for security, identified some problem areas, and set us up with security software designed to prevent malware, ransomware, and all of the other threats that are on the internet these days. They've been helping central New Jersey businesses for 30 years, and they have an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. You should contact them either on the web at courtlandcomputerservices.com or by phone at 732-356-8860. 732-356-8860, courtlandcomputerservices.com. Tell them you heard about them on the Baseball Lifer podcast and get a $100 coupon toward your first two hours of services. Back on the Baseball Lifer podcast, Don Wardlow here after quite an interview with Rick Delarada. A couple of things I didn't have in front of me when I was talking to Rick. It turned out that Cattell Marte had his 20-game hitting streak snapped on Wednesday night. I didn't realize that. I thought he had gotten a base hit. In fact, he had drawn three walks, but no base hits. So his hitting streak in the postseason play is over at 20. The other thing I wasn't aware of when I was talking with Rick was that Corey Seager had been named MVP of the World Series. And as such, he now has two MVP awards for World Series in different leagues. That has never happened. There have been other two-time MVPs, but always in the same league. Sandy Koufax with the Dodgers, Bob Gibson with the Cardinals, and one man who did it twice within the same league, and that was Reggie Jackson doing it with Oakland in 1973 and then in 1977 with the Yankees. At this moment, as I close this week's show, which we did with Rick Delarada, I don't have a fixed guest for next week. I look forward to locating one and bringing him on 
next week's Baseball Lifer podcast. Until then, have a good week. This is Don Wardlow, your Baseball Lifer. (laughs) 